Hey, in today's episode, four questions, five children. We uncover new depths behind the questions of the Seder. Ruff Cook's incredible insight into why we eat marer and the biggest crisis facing world Jewry today. I'm Moshe Schoenberg, and this is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. It's an incredible idea that I saw today from Rav Cook. Cook, Avram Yitzchak Cook. He was the first chief rabbi of the current iteration of the state of Israel. Rav Cook says the following about Marer. Read the Marer on Pesach. Passover, the bitter herbs, eating the bitter herbs. He points out that so many of us in our lives. We're eating bitter herbs. Our lives sometimes seem so much of a composite of struggle and anxiety, of doubts, of pain. We have marrow in our lives. We have marrow in our lives. So then why on Pesach, on Passover, when we're supposed to be free and we're supposed to be joyous and happy, we're eating mara again? What's the symbolism of the mara or the bitter herbs? This is the night of freedom. To escape the bondage of anxieties, of mindsets and pain and suffering. Ruff Cook, such a beautiful thing. If you bite into something and it's bitter and it's sharp and you jump back and... I start watering. That's a sign. That's a sign that this is abnormal. This is irregular. When you bite into the bitterness and you you taste the sharpness of the horseradish or the murrah, then you begin to realize how good the rest of your life is. How much blessing you have. How much things you take for granted. We eat the murrah on Pesach. We eat the murrah and we're saying the bitterness itself reveals the sweetness. And we dip it into the charoset, which is sweet. And and there's a realization that yes, things are bitter and and I'm not negating or minimizing that in the slightest. Not at all. Things are bitter, things are harsh. And I saw this and I got encouragement because you could look around. Let's move it away from a personal level, on a communal level. You see things that might be happening in the community. You see things that might be happening in the world, in your country. You see things that are happening. It's bitter. And it's bitter. And there's attack. And there's shooting. And there's people abusing other people. And there's... It could break your heart. It could break your heart. Aguna problems and assault problems and problems in education and inequities and wealth and poverty and depression and there's so much there's so much bitterness there's so much bitterness but then the perspective of the murder points out that there's also so much beauty and when we taste this bitterness and we when we feel it viscerally and it's real and we accept it and we then commit to overcome that but at the same time 
we realize that we're not accustomed to the bitterness and we never should be accustomed to the bitterness because a slave, a slave doesn't realize that what they're eating is bitter. Maybe the first, second, third times, yeah. But eventually you come uh, used to it and this is what I eat. So when we're sitting and we're eating the bar, it's a message and it's a call, says Ralph Cook. To yes, take any mara in life and dip it in karosa and make it sweet and sweeten it and fight for the underprivileged and fight for the oppressed and fight for the marginalized and fight for equal opportunities and equal equal respect for everyone, no matter how different they may be. That's mara, but we're dipping it in, as and we dip it in the karosa. And realize that everything else in life, everything else in life, the fact that you could taste the bitterness, the fact that it's bitter, the fact that you're crying is a sign of how good we have it, how good the world is and how much greatness there is in the world and how much greatness there is in our communities, how much greatness there is in our country, how much greatness there is in the world, how much greatness now bring it back to the individual level, how much greatness there is within you. Yes, you have this thing that you're struggling with and you have this anxiety and you have this worry and this doubt and this insecurity but you know how much greatness there is in you that one insecurity sure it's real it's valid and let's deal with that but there's so the 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 bitterness itself is the revelation of the sweetness beyond and you have so much greatness you have so much that you're needed for you're so much that you're is unique about you that you could go out and bring it out into the world. And that's the ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom is not to sweep under the rug any bitterness and any problem. But it's to take tomorrow and to dip it in the horse. And on a night of freedom, on a night of redemption, we take tomorrow and we bite into it. And we dip it into Harosa. And we take this mindset. It's such a powerful idea. Picking up with the Agada we've covered in the first three episodes in the season, season five, working with the Agada as our core text, it's a departure point for contemporary, deep, and relevant Torah. So we've covered Kadesh, Orchats, Karpas, Yachats, we've begun Magid, we've talked about the beginning of Magid, that first paragraph, invitation to share the bread and what that means and its implications for freedom, for liberty in the deepest and highest of levels. And Magid continues with perhaps the most famous of feature of the Seder, the four questions. Four questions. The children ask the four questions. It's followed up by the beginning of the answer, the very core of the answer. Recapping, reinvigorating the story of the slavery in Egypt and the redemption. And then it talks about the four children. Four children, the four types of child. Notably, doesn't give preference to one or the other. Echad chacham, echad rasha, echad tam, echad she'enedeh says, preface to the four children, one, Agada says, one wise child, one wicked child, one 
innocent child, one child that doesn't know how to ask. But it says before each one, Echad, Echad, Echad. I could have just said four children and list them all. Why does it interject between each one? Echad, 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 to show that they're all one, they're all equal. Not one better than the other. You know, just because somebody's wise doesn't make you better than the next. Somebody's evil, it doesn't make them better than the next. People have different dispositions. Esau wasn't better than Jacob. Jacob wasn't better than Esau. Esau, whose disposition towards violence, like the Talmud says, he was born with fully haired, red hair, came out of the womb like that, which was very symbolic that he was born under the constellation of Madim, of blood, of anger, but it just depends how what direction you're going. Have you grown today? past what you where you've been yesterday are you moving the needle forward or backward doesn't matter where the needle is it's just what direction you're going in it's not where you are in the ladder but what direction on the ladder you are heading that's the four children so what's the idea here four questions four children there seems to be a connection that each one of the four questions is correspondent to each one of the four children each one of the questions is being asked by the other. Or by Moshe Feinstein, one of the greatest and most incredible and most humble. And what, a, what a role model who lived in, initially in Russia and then emigrated to New York, Lower East Side, in the late 1800s. And he's renowned in both halachic knowledge and also in his character as a person. What he became is unparalleled. And he explains the four questions like this. First question. The wise child. The wise child is asking like this. Who has it worse? Somebody who was born into poverty, and that's all they know. All they know is that poverty. Or someone who experienced luxury, who experienced great wealth and lost it all and now is reduced to poverty very clear it's very obvious that not only does he or she have the same level of challenges and pop the, the everything that poverty carries along all that severe baggage but also they're comparing it to what they once had that emotional inks that that causes that dissonance that pain so therefore, the wise child realizes this and asks the following question. Why are we celebrating on Passover? Why are we celebrating freedom? I understand if we were free now. I would understand if right now we had complete autonomy, not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, then we would be celebrating. But we're not. Right? We're saying next year, next year we'll be in Jerusalem, next year we'll be free, we'll have cherut, we'll have Freedom, not just of a freedom from, but a freedom to, will be zoned in, will be locked in, we'll have no more inequalities, we'll have no more injustices, we'll have communities and societies built on compassion and kindness. But right now we don't have that. And we once did. We once did when we left Egypt. So the leaving of the Egypt, of the slavery, the exodus, in itself should be a cause of pain, a source of sorrow, not a source of celebration. So that's what he's asking. 
On this night, night, Lila, darkness, there's darkness here, there's darkness here. If there's darkness here, why are we coming together and celebrating Passover? What's going on? Especially when we once tasted the light. We once stood at the mountain. We once stood at Harsinai and received the Torah. And now we're so disconnected at, at times. Of course, we're on the, on the deepest level, we're as connected as ever. But we're in Layla, we're in darkness. So why are we celebrating freedom? And that's the first question of the Manashtana, that we're eating matzah, matzah, the bread of freedom. Why are we eating the bread of freedom then? The second question, the wicked child, wicked child, asking, This darkness, this exile, the rain is kulomar, it's all bitter. It's all bad, it's all... Like, why are we doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are we doing all this avodah, hard work? A life of Torah observance takes effort. Why are we doing this? Why don't we just assimilate? Why don't we just get rid of all this baggage of being Jewish? Forget about it. Discard it. Like a label. And just uh, move on. I don't want bitterness. I don't want marar. What do we do this for? That's the second question. The third question, the third child, is the Tom. The Tom is someone who's basic. Basic. Someone who's basic. Their Judaism is one of very simple, a simpleton. Why do I do this? It's Tevia from Fiddler. Tradition. 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 Right, so yeah, why, why, do I, why do I do this? I, I just no, I do Jewish things. I do it. I, I make my mom happy. I'm, I'm, I don't know. This is just some what I'm used to. It's not a deep. It's not a thinking. It's not a, a super relevant, incisive, experiential, emotional, mindful task. But it's uh, I just do it. You look at the the Torah when it talks about the simple simple child. It says, child asks, Mazot, what's this? What's this? I don't know. What is this? What is it now? Why do we do it? I don't know. We just do it. We just do it because this is what we do. Stop asking questions. I don't know. Right, that's the, the top. And what happens is when you have a Judaism like that, that you just do it because you're hanging on by a thread of, yeah, this is what I do. Then as soon as you face a challenge and you're not, Necessarily like the second child that discards it and is antagonistic towards it. But you're not so confident. You're you're generally positive towards it. But if you don't have that confidence, then as soon as you meet a paradox, as soon as you hit a struggle point and you're stuck, you don't have enough fuel in the tank to keep you plowing through. That's the third question. The dipping, we're dipping the mara and the charosa. Dipping the vegetables in the salt water, the tears, the sweetness in the tears, the bitterness in the sweetness. I have a question. I'm not sure what's going on here. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough intellectual rationalization. I don't have enough experiential moments. I don't have enough of that power, that energy to plow through it. So I hit a question and then I'm like, Mazot, what's this? I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. That's the third question. The fourth question. Any day, the one that doesn't even know 
how to ask a question. What what is there to be asked? They're apathetic. Rampant apathy. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not even asking questions. I'm not asking. What does it matter? Kulanu Masubin, the fourth question. We're all laying down. We're laying down. It's not even putting up a, a struggle. These are the questions, and they're good questions, and they're sometimes questions, sometimes challenges, sometimes answers, sometimes struggles. But it all boils down to is what is the story? What story are you a part of? That's the answer. Avadim Hayinu begins the answer. And really the whole Passover experience, the whole Seder, is the answer. Is the answer. That you're part of a story. You're the letter in the scroll. You're taking the book off the library shelf with your family name on it. And reading page by page by page. And we start from page one. Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves in Egypt. Our ancestors were idol worshippers. They had their challenges in their times. And we have the idol worships of our times. The powers, the ideals that we give credence to, that we give power to, that are beyond us, that aren't rooted in truth. And we go on this journey and we tell the story. We don't only tell the story, but we live the story. And we put ourselves in the story, realizing that every single one of us in the exact station that we are, in the place that we are, in the city that we are, the age that we are, with the people around us, with our skills, with our flaws, with our challenges, with our mistakes, is exactly where we're supposed to be in our page of the story. All the twists and turns, all the ups and downs, led us to this exact moment right now, listening to this podcast, sitting around a Passover Seder in a couple of days. And it's going to answer all four of the questions. As an addendum, I use the word wicked to translate the second child. It's not really wicked, but it's confused. Child is confused. Confused because the question the child asks is, What is this to you? What does Judaism mean to you? Forget about telling me what I should do. Uh, a lecture or a class, uh, a talk. I've heard what you had to say, but show me. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Tell me I should marry Jewish, but show me why I should. You reprimand me if I slack in my secular studies. But why don't you do that when I slack in my Jewish growth and advancement? What does it mean to you? It's 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 less of a. It's not it's not antagonistic. It's confusion. It's coming from no basis. I don't have a basis to to a foundation to launch off. I need something. I need. I need avoda. If not, it's just going to be avoda. It's just going to be hard work. It's just going to be tedious. I don't understand what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? It doesn't make sense. There's a distance. There's a gap. It's a challenge to the parent. And maybe it's subordinate. Maybe that's why we'll use the word wicked. But it's a message. It's a message to the parent, and that's the idea of of. Blunt the teeth, set the teeth on edge. What's going on with the teeth? Right, that's the response you should. The Haggadah says that after the wicked child asked the question, you should set his teeth on edge. 
Haka Ashinov. Blunt the teeth. Why don't you just say, like, re uh, reprimand and, and give, uh, rebuke him? <laughs> What's with the teeth? There's two places in Tanakh, two places in the Torah that talks about teeth. Rabbi Sachs points this out. One, the prophet Yermio, one, Yecheskel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Both times they say, parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Jeremiah 31, 28. The preface, there's a preface to the child's teeth being on edge, and that's where the point of discovery and the locus in our query should be focused on. Where are the sour grapes here, and how we, how can we get rid of them? How can we shift the sourness to sweetness, to make it lively, to make it exciting, to make it uh, something you look forward to and anticipate, and that the kids want to dance because Pesach's here, that the kids want to dance because Shabbat is here. The kids are excited to be alive. They're excited about Hashem, that they're excited about Judaism, Torah. And it leads to the conclusion of the fifth child, the fifth child. We talk about the four. We talk about the four cups of wine. Really, there should be five cups of wine. There's five expressions of freedom that the Torah states. And we pour the fifth cup of wine. Astute observers will notice that at the end of the Seder, we pour a special cup. It's called the Koshal Eliyahu, the cup of Elijah. We pour the cup. And nobody drinks it. So we pour the fifth cup, but we don't drink it. This is the fifth, the highest form of redemption that we haven't yet reached. And that's the fifth child. The fifth child is not at the table. Not at the table. You know how many Jews this year aren't going to be at Passover tables? That's the fifth child. One that's not there. Forget about that. They had this question and that question. That they're struggling with this, that they're struggling with that, but at least they're at the table. What about the fifth child and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth that aren't there? And their kids and their kids? So we pour the cup. We pour the cup, but we're not going to drink it because we haven't reached it yet. Because when we dip that, when we talk about the plague of darkness, later on in Nagata, when we talk about the ten plagues, we talk about darkness. In a way, we're suffering from the darkness today. It's, it's a, an epic tragedy. And we're silent. We're silent by that fifth cup and we don't drink it. Because the fifth child isn't here. It's the missing expression. The missing question. The missing manifestation that can't be filled by anyone else can't. It can't. No matter how many people are doing good things, it can't be filled. And it's continuing the assimilation. We're not yet at peace. We haven't reached the destination. That's the reminder. The cup of Elijah. And we're pouring and it's sitting on the table and we're acknowledging it. The fifth child is inherent. There's still work to be done and journey not yet complete. idea was first 
expressed by Bob Shurava or Mendel Schneerson. He passed away in the 90s. Could you imagine if just in the in the 20-something years since then, how much more, how many more children are at the table? It's the biggest problem facing Jewry today. Absolute crisis. Yeah, we have struggles. We have this, we have that. Challenges. But that people aren't even at the table. That's what we hope for at Pesach. Deliverance. It's, it's the time of Geula. It's the time of redemption. It's the time of Emuna. Faith in Hashem. Kibbutz Goliath of collecting in the exiles, the ingathering of the exiles. Every Jew, no matter how far they are, no matter what corner of the earth they may be, absconced in. It's the parent that's missing the child. No matter how, how lost the child is, the parent's not giving up. In an amusement park, you can't find your child. You know, it's just, okay, whatever. We have a whole bunch of them already here. Yeah, it's fine. We'll leave a couple behind. No, you're going to the corners of the earth. You're going to the corners of the park. Bring them all in, and that's Pesach. Shana Abba Aradi Israel. Next year will be in the land of Israel. Not only we sitting at the table, but all Jews from all around the world. We'll be together. We'll be like brothers and sisters. Returning. Returning to our land. Returning our hearts. Coming a whole family once again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that. And listen to the other episodes. Please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Podcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.